Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where 9 people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. It's hard to believe it's now almost 10 years since Podrigo Tuma and I started 10 by 9 in the black box in Belfast. In that time we've heard hundreds and hundreds of true stories covering every area of life. We loved it then. We love it now. All our 10x9s are now taking place on Zoom, so you can join in wherever you are in the world. You can find information about all our upcoming events and all the things you need to know about us and some things you don't at our website, 10x9.com. Now, there are three stories in this podcast for you, all told in recent months. Our first comes, appropriately enough, from a first-timer. It was February and we had teamed up with the Science Festival here. The theme was experiment. Here's Harry Wilson. I don't find human interaction easy. Uh, people are unpredictable. They use a lot of words when one could say the same thing much more efficiently. I believe that uh, one person is smart, but I treat a collection of people just like they're sheep. Uh, to help me prepare for the unpredictable nature of human interaction, uh, I prepare for the, the best case scenario and the worst case scenario and a few in between uh, because surprises, e- even the good ones, they tend to derail me. Um, I struggle with eye contact and understanding when people are being sarcastic or pedantic or whatever. Uh, I studied facial expressions and body language to try and help me uh, better understand, uh, but my mind gets distracted with unusual things or it latches on to one minor thing. Um, I don't think that I feel uh, human emotions, at least if I do, I I don't fully understand them. If I've ever been in love, it was only once Uh, But if I had the same conditions uh, with someone else, uh, then I think I would have been perfectly happy. So I can only conclude that it wasn't so much the person, but the experiences of that relationship is actually what I had missed. My ex-partner used to say that I was a good listener, uh, that I asked insightful questions. But in all all honesty, I just didn't know how to get them to stop. Uh, The questions that I asked was my way of trying to, to find out exactly what they wanted from me. As a child, I felt that most people uh, were just being polite and putting up with me until I eventually gave up and went away and left them alone. I couldn't figure out what they wanted. I still struggle with with what people want. I enjoy swing dancing because there is an implied contract here. Uh, You go up, you ask someone uh, to dance, and for the length of the song, we have a range of protocol that governs our movements, i.e. how each person reacts, etc. That is... dancing. However, in life, this is rare. I categorize people into boxes or a series of boxes to help try and uh, help me predict their motives or their behaviors. There's, of course, uh, benefits to how my mind operates. Uh, I've never been diagnosed with anything, so I don't really know how best to refer to it. Uh, In first aid emergencies, uh, for instance, I am calm and focused, regardless of who is involved. Uh, And I've been involved in a few with some family members, but my heart rate and my breathing, they remain unaffected. In hospital, whenever my ex-wife was giving birth, I I quickly noticed the patterns on the machines. Uh, I assume they were measuring contractions. I'm not entirely certain. Um, And there was a monitor on the baby's head also. Uh, So from this, I was able to, to notice patterns and I could see the contraction gaining strength and then I could advise uh, her to breathe deeply on the antinox to take the top of the contraction. 
uh, each time that she moved into a different position to try and get more comfortable, I shifted the mini leads and the drips and whatnot uh, so that they wouldn't get tangled. Uh, afterwards, uh, the midwife team commented about how I should maybe consider uh, studying midwifery to become uh, part of a midwife team. They said they never saw a husband be so helpful. And I thought this was very kind uh, because after all, I had wrongly identified my child's gender on the first attempt. So I was ushered out into the corridor with this little bundle who was now my daughter. Uh, but don't worry for me though, babies and children are easy. Their demands are few in variety, even if they are many demands. Uh, I enjoy playing with babies and children. They are honest in their assessments and they react exactly how they mean, uh, without posturing or pretense. And so as my daughter became older, she moved out of this stage and we enjoy travel together. Uh, but for my regular visitations, I needed something further than just arts and crafts. TV watching is not an ideal way to spend time with your only child. At school, I've always loved computer studies and science. You know, here is a predictable thing with rules and results based upon those rules. Now, but these are not subjects that my daughter overly enjoys, but still she showed enthusiasm for our Science Mondays. From vinegar volcanoes to building and operating our robot projects. Uh, it's a fairly simple device. There was just two motors uh, here and here, which goes forward and back based on whatever inputs we have. But it was obvious that it was playing with rather than building these robots that she loved. So we had light sensors at the front, which you could set, program them with the little selector switch uh, just here, as you can see, just in there. So you could either set it to chase or avoid light, the little parking sensors at the front. So again, it could either chase or avoid an object. Her giggles at this little device chasing her around the house still echo in my halls. These are happy memories. As a baby, my daughter loved the beginning uh, of the, the track painted black by the Rolling Stones. So it seemed like a great track to test out our Newtonian fluid. Uh, for those that maybe don't know what it is, uh, it's a solution, and they use that word loosely because it, it varies from solution to uh, solid. Um, it contains corn flour. Uh, it's called a Newtonian, uh, non-Newtonian fluid because uh, it means that it doesn't follow Newton's law of viscosity or resistance. Uh, for instance, water has the same resistance or viscosity regardless of what uh, pressure is placed uh, upon it. Um, for instance, if you've ever been baking and you've tapped the top of the cake to help the fluid uh, pour out, the cake mix pour out to the corners of the cake tin, then you are operating within these principles by making the cake mix uh, more of a fluid. Uh, and so we cover the sideways speaker with film and slowly pour the fluid into the speaker. Add sound, in our case, the stones. Uh, the vibrations and the microscopic pulses of the speaker started to affect the fluid. We could see little waves of motion uh, cutting across the glossy surface. Uh, for me, too many uh, sources of noise can, can overwhelm me. So it's, it's really fascinating to be able to physically see the noise. Uh, to better uh, see the, the properties of this non-Newtonian fluid, it helps to break the surface or to cause some resistance. Uh, so I asked my now 10-year-old daughter to, to poke the surface. Moving with the vibrations of the music, the little modules started to form on this previously flat void. These unfriendly looking shaking creatures started to appear, but wasn't showing the full effect. So I gave it more power, uh, but still the vibrations were not strong enough to cause the fluid to stretch out 
uh, and to dance its distorted little dance, like a cross between uh, the ocean in the Moana film and the, the, the road cleaners in Monsters, Inc., if you've seen either of those movies. So after changing something with a good bit more bass, the creatures returned, alien, malevolent, but still they weren't strong enough. They're only partly formed. Even at maximum volume, my speakers did not sustain enough pulses to help them truly live. So finally, I gave up for fear of complaints from my neighbors. And so we figured that my 90s hi-fi speakers, uh, they were just not strong enough. Science has its rules. And really, in the scale that we were conducting our tests and experiments, failure is no big deal. Uh, we can just pack our things away and go and do something else uh, fun. Now, as my daughter is midway through her teenage years, I can't help but feel that my biggest experiment is still to come, that somehow I have to find out how to be uh, the human, how to be the man that she needs me to be. I have a two-year-old as well. Uh, and as I said, uh, babies are easy. But I find myself now hesitant to be as tactile with my eldest as I used to be. This is parallel strongly when I have them both together and I'm comfortable with my youngest and uncomfortable with my eldest. Uh, you know, as this young woman visits my house, often I feel apart, I feel awkward, and I, I struggle to know how to operate and conduct myself. I have no box for her as she changes from this lively kid into a fine young woman. You know, she doesn't need the formality of, of a female co-worker or that, so I'm, I'm really not sure. There's no context of experience for me to, to pluck these predictable behaviors or motivations from. And perhaps I'm, a, I'm ahead of the curve with the knowledge that I don't actually know what's going on in my daughter's head. Uh, perhaps some parents are misled in the thinking that they do, uh, but I have no such uh, misconceptions. Uh, it doesn't help me, however, as I go forth with the biggest and probably most important experiment uh, of my life, an experiment with stakes so high that I cannot concede failure. Thanks so much, Herbie. What a brilliant experiment. And you can see Herbie and his props on our YouTube channel, where you can watch practically all the stories from our Zoom events in bite-sized chunks going right back to April of last year. Okay, next up is a story from December. The theme was connections, and all the way from Baltimore in the USA, here's Connie Phelps. I walked into the men's bathroom and saw the nun's cap lying upside down on the floor. It was not supposed to be there. My teenage son had been telling me for a couple of weeks that he was having difficulty peeing. No pain, but not enough pee either. We tried a couple of remedies, but mostly I took his pacing back and forth to the bathroom to be a product of his autism, a compulsive fixation. One day it dawned on my neurodismissive consciousness that it was real and worsening. So we were at the doctor's office trying to collect a sample of the thing whose scarcity had brought us there in the first place. We'd already spent half a day trying to get a pea sample in a large kitchen bowl I placed inside our toilet at home, which involved so much frustration and failure that Nick finally yelled at me to get out of his room as I checked on him for the hundredth time to make sure he had not exploded. All that pacing and waiting finally produced some liquid gold, which I put in a sterile container and carried off with my boy to the doctor's office so that they could do an analysis. 
When we got there, they told us the specimen had to be collected on site. He dutifully drank two more cups of water, a very brave act when you don't know if you can get it out again, and we started over. I requested that they give us a nun's cap to use, a deep round plastic bowl with wings to hold it in place on the toilet seat. I believed it to be the perfect object to easily catch his pee without causing any invasion of privacy. And I placed it on the toilet for Nick's use. Its functionality made it beautiful in my eyes and maybe in the eyes of whoever first gave it that name. That's how I found myself with my ear pressed anxiously to the door of the men's room, almost doing a jig when I heard a musical tinkle. I waited with a broad smile, ready to congratulate him. Sure enough, the tinkle stopped and he opened the door. Did you go? I asked. Yes. I picked up the nun's cap from the floor. What happened with this, Nick? Oh no, he said, it bothered me. I could not pee with it there. So I took it out and peed into the toilet. I feel good now, so don't worry, mommy. You do not have to worry. You do too much worrying. As a dull neurotypical, I'm undersensitized to the glaring discomfort of change and the unfamiliar, to the sensory disruptions caused by strange things being where they shouldn't be. Bright plastic things that catch and reflect the fluorescent light are unacceptable. How many neon lit nuns caps would you want in your toilet? During the hours of waiting for the first miracle pee at home, I had plenty of time to research why my son might not be able to urinate normally and all too quickly found out that this could be a side effect of his epilepsy medication. I immediately reached out to the pediatrician, the urologist, to the neurologist, and of course, the specialist of all specialists, Facebook. On a Facebook epilepsy group, I asked a simple question. If anyone taking the anti-epileptic drug that had kept Nick seizure-free for two years had ever had this problem, I was deluged by a flood of affirmative responses and some horror stories. So many that I deleted the question and retreated from Facebook altogether like a brave snapping turtle who all of a sudden runs into an alligator. That's why, don't worry mommy, was not on the menu of options as I stood in the bathroom holding an offensively immaculate nun's cap. I've learned that trying to talk her away past institutional rules is actually the nuclear option. I could have a special needs parent crying meltdown, that was an option, or I could angrily stalk out and tell Nick or the doctor that they were making my life too difficult. We could persevere and keep trying. I've done all of these at one time or another, but there was another option. I had the illicit home pee in my purse. And although the system rejected it, I knew that it was our only hope. This decision was not without risk. As I poured the home pee into their sterile cup and put it in the little cupboard, I thought that Nick was just as likely to announce to the doctor, 
I couldn't pee into that plastic thing. I do not pee into things like that, but it's okay because my mom brought pee from home. She said not to tell you, but I can't do that. Nick may very well be an angel in pimple disguise, and he not only lacks a screen, but seems to find it immoral not to be fully explanatory and transparent in every situation. I decided that if he spontaneously confessed, I would take the public shaming and survive it. We could go to some other doctor's office and not pee there too. As it was, Nick forgot to tell. We got the information we came to get and left, congratulating ourselves on a job well done and exchanging declarations of affection. Although we had not really resolved anything, we were a team. Thanks so much, Connie. You and Nick have such a lovely relationship. And if you want to see the nuns cap, you can. It's on our YouTube channel. Not sure how the nuns feel about that name, though. Now, as you know, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be. But we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. We're so thankful to everyone who has donated. If you don't like Patreon, you can give via PayPal. Just look us up using our email address, which is story at 10by9.com. That is story at 10by9.com. Equally, you can just sit back and support us by turning up, by listening and enjoying. And now here's our third story. It was told in February when we teamed up with LGBT Heritage NI and the group Working With Pride. The theme was body, mind, spirit. And here's first-timer Karen McShane. So the 4th of July is American Independence Day. But it's was also my Independence Day in 2018. And it was also the day I met the Queen for lunch. This is the ticket um, that you sent me, inviting me to Holyrood Palace to join her garden party. But the story doesn't start there. We need to look back to when I was nine years of age to consider the journey that I had made. The troubles in Belfast meant I was part of a Catholic family living in a very Protestant area during the height of the 1970s troubles. As was common at those times, families in the wrong neighborhoods were, I will use the word, encouraged to leave. And nothing was more encouraging than having the house across the road burned down with the note to say, we were next. So my father packed a tea chest with a few personal belongings. And as a family, we started again. This traumatic experience meant that I had a new beginning in a new market town, leaving behind the normality and few friends that I had made. However, at this stage, I was finishing primary school and preparing to move to a single sex grammar school. It was really then that I realized the horror that was in my mind. I was feeling I was in the wrong place. I was not supposed to be at an all boys school. Surrounded by boys was not the place I was meant to be, and trying to fit in was mentally exhausting, and that involves the mind part of tonight's theme, body, mind, spirit. To set the context, this was the early 1980s. When I reached 15 years old, it was still illegal in Northern Ireland to be in a same-sex sexual intercourse relationship, and this was only decriminalised in 1982. That's 39 years ago. I didn't know if I was gay. I didn't even know what trans was in those days. 
but I did know that something just wasn't right. So when I was at school, that I want to designate as trans or even gay, for me, it just was not possible in those days. So what did I do? I hid. It wasn't until I was 38, that was in 2005, that the right to change gender was introduced. And I knew I had strong feelings as to why I had not fitted in all those years earlier. But I thought at 38, it was far too late for me to do anything. And I was going to be stuck in my mind in the wrong place in life. And so I just persevered, telling no one how I felt. Fast forward a few years, and by 45, I wasn't coping. My mind was cracking up. I was really depressed. I felt that I didn't fit in anywhere, and to compound things, my body was in turmoil. I was overweight. Some things haven't changed during lockdown. And I was probably at risk of a, risk of a stroke or heart attack. So by 45, my body was the issue, suffering because of what was going on in my mind. By that time in 2012, I even went so far as to think about how could I end this? My coping mechanism before this period was simple. Get up at 5 a.m., go to work, stay there until eight or nine, then take the hours drive home. Um, and as I was so exhausted, I would just go to bed. This repeated every day of the week as without the ability to focus on work and other things, the real issues in my mind had the risk of coming to the fore and I wasn't ready to deal with those. My eating habits were ridiculous and my body was really starting to suffer and I had to do something. I made the decision to come out and tell those closest to me what was going on in my mind in an attempt to sort out my body as my mind couldn't be sorted without the other. But that coming out is another story. After coming out, it took a lot of years of counselling and starting hormones in 2017 before normal service resumed and I started to live my life as it always should have been. As for my transition background, this is well documented in the Channel 4 documentary, The Making of Me, which followed me for two years as I came to terms with finding who I was and more importantly, telling other people who I really was. The researcher from the TV crew met me at my first event that I attended in Manchester, as I was too afraid to be myself here in Northern Ireland. That was my first UK outing, where I plucked up the courage to take the new me out for the first time in the middle of when I was trying to come to terms with who I was. Little did I know that several ladies that I met that weekend would become my best friends, and at least one of them's here tonight. Channel 4 then filmed my progress and transition through visits to the doctor, my first haircut, my first speech therapy session, and then my first visit to the endocrinology department at the city hospital. Hamish was very accommodating as my doctor, and I went in with the view that I was going to have a battle to take the hormones so necessary to allow my body to come to the place that it was always meant to be. I needn't have worried as I left that day with a bag of medication to start my body on the road to recovery. At this part of the journey, the real life living had commenced, but there was a lot of transphobia and lack of acceptance from others. 
the snide ridiculing remarks, the poking of fun at the new person that I'd become. But I was myself and I didn't care anymore what people thought. I was free and able to be myself. With the spirit knocked out of me, I'd started my journey in secret, telling only a handful of my closest new friends. At this stage, I'd reached the pinnacle of my career. I was chair of my professional institution, director in a multinational engineering consultancy, and had a charity or board meeting to attend virtually every night to keep my mind occupied. I had to assess which people would accept me for who I was and to make some really difficult decisions. I resigned from my job. I lost my home, my family, and quite a few people who I thought were my friends. At this stage in, in my life, I remember telling someone who was considering their own journey, take a look around at all the people in your lives. Then imagine 95% of those people are no longer there. Sadly, that is the experience that many trans people still get. With the clothes on my back, I left everything I had and started again, in a similar way as to how my mother and father had done with me and my siblings in the 1970s. The big difference now was the spirit. This time, I was in a very much happier life scenario. I felt like I could actually live my real life as it always should have been. Maybe it was because I was in my 40s and no longer cared about what people thought about me. I just wanted to be free. The release of the pressure can only be described as having the world's troubles lifted off your shoulders and allowing you to live your life to the fullest. After spending quite a few months away from all the organizations that I'd stepped away from, I started to get the odd phone call asking me to get involved in different things again. Each time I had to explain the journey that I'd taken and to set out who I'd become. One of those organizations actually nominated me to meet Her Majesty. And just the day after getting released from an operation in hospital, I couldn't miss the invite from Elizabeth. And despite being more than a little bit fragile, I caught the 6.30 a.m. flight to meet her on the 4th of July my Independence Day. A great poem by Robert Frost sums up my journey. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less travelled by, and that has made all the difference. The new road was initially not as welcoming as the old road, with this twisty winding path that I had to follow, but today it has opened up into a far better place for my body mind and spirit thanks so much karen we look forward to more from you and how lovely to get a bit of poetry on the podcast and speaking of poetry podrick will be back with the third season of poetry unbound shortly so keep an eye or an ear out for that and if you can't wait he also has the Corimila podcast available at all the usual podcasty places and that is pretty much it for this podcast if you'd like to tell a story at 10 by 9 go along to the guidelines page on our website 10 by 9.com and get in touch We are always, and I can't stress this enough, always looking for storytellers. If you enjoyed this podcast, could you go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your fix of 10 by 9 give us a rating and maybe even a short review. This podcast was written, produced, presented, mixed and published by Paul Doran. So, blame me.
Thanks to you for listening, but thanks most of all to Herbie Wilson, Connie Phelps and Karen McShane. I'll be back with another podcast soon, but for now, bye-bye.